HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Off air, I'm the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. And on air, on The Farm Farm Report, I talk about all things related to food and food production. And of course, today is no different. We are continuing our conversation around the meat industry, looking specifically at slow meat. We're joined um, by two very special guests here in the studio, Sophie Grant and Sam Garwin from Fleischer's. Welcome to the studio, ladies. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So we have talked to the Fleischer's team before on the show, and so I'm excited to hear a little bit more uh, insider perspective on on your work and kind of how you guys think about um, slow meat at Fleischer's. But before we jump into the nuts and bolts of the organization, of course, I want to hear a little bit more about you guys. So, Sam, you are the chief operating officer, um, but you started as a butcher, still probably do some butchering. How did you get into cutting meat? It really started as just a desire to learn more. It was honestly not supposed to be a career move. I'm very happy that how it's worked out. But I I was interested in learning more about how meat got from the farm to the table, but specifically, um, you know, in even the best places where meat is processed and used, what is going to waste, what, you know, what are the issues they're facing? And so I, I was looking for an apprenticeship where I could learn that. So it was originally supposed to be just a three month um, experience where I learned how to butcher. And in the process, I really fell in love with it. Um, I really realized that this was an area where I could both be very hands-on literally with food and um, make a difference on a bigger picture with this meat movement that was kind of taking shape. Yeah. And, you know, for folks who aren't here with us in the studio, uh, you know, Sam is a woman. And I want to touch on that a little bit because I feel like there's not a lot of you in the meat cutting business. And did that come up for you at all? 
It did at the beginning. Um, definitely, you know, it's hard to say how much was just because I was a new face and how much was because I was a woman, but there definitely was some... Um, trepidation amongst new customers about whether I could do the same things that, that the guys could do. Um, I'm very proud to say that everybody, I've, I've not faced those issues in the last three years um, since that initial kind of shock. But, um, you know, there's it's a very physical job. I think there's a part of the reason that more women aren't involved is because, um, you know, there is a lot of, you, you have to get dirty. You have to lift you know, a hundred pounds. Uh, that's how much a side of pork weighs. It's just, that's part of the job. Um, and, and might not even be about ability, might just be about desire to, to do that work. Um, I find it very rewarding to be that physical in the job day to day. Um, but there definitely are are fewer of us, but, um, there's some, yeah, it's growing number. Carrie Underly does amazing work. She's starting her own butcher school in Chicago. We have Sarah Bigelow at the meat hook. Um, lots of other women out there doing great work. So, well, so how does one make their way from a three-month butchering internship to chief operating officer? <laughs> Obviously, you were impressing the right folks. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, my background is actually not in food at all. I, I studied information science, and I worked in software for several years. Um, I w- ended up being a product manager, which is very similar to being a chief operating officer, actually, because you, you really have your fingers on the pulse of lots of different areas of the business from marketing to product development to engineering, actually, you know, producing the the thing. Um, and that's what I like. I'm a, I'm a generalist. So keeping track of all those moving parts is, um, you know, whether it's meat or software is what I'm good at. So yeah, it's a natural fit. (laughs) Well, Sophie, how about you? You know, your, your current title is marketing director. How did you come to the Fleischer's family? Well, I'm a Brooklyn native, born and raised, and I went to school in Ann Arbor. And when I returned to what seemed like a completely different borough, um, you know, I was just really excited by the food industry. I've been working in restaurants, catering, food businesses for quite a while now. And returning back to Park Slope and seeing the Fleischer shop and seeing this new, exciting food scene was really inspiring. And you know, we, we kind of started up at our Red Hook facility um, at the end of 2013, the start of 2014. So I was part of the team to kind of the team of, of, of two or three people to get the administration together and, um, you know, really get ready to, to grow in a, in a great way. So having the ability to have my desk right next to the cutting floor. I mean, as Sam mentioned, we're a really education focused company. So being able to hold a position as marketing director, but to have one of the butchers be like, we're going to have you break a pig this week. You know, that, that to me is really exciting. And that's the type of place where I want to work. So, you know, and having, having access to great meat and being able to practice what we preach is really, is really wonderful. And so one of the side benefits, you guys probably get to eat pretty well, right? It's not too shabby. Yeah, <laughs> no, we're pretty spoiled and we, we, don't take that for granted. And, you know, it's part of us like finding those cuts that maybe are less common and, and lesser, lesser known by, by our customers, but then being able to create something with it and then share it with them is part of that full picture. So it really, it helps to be able to 
take home a, a grass-fed ribeye and compare that to something that's pasture-raised or something, you know, and being able to share that on our social media and get people excited through that is is really special. So, you know, you, you said the magic words there, grass-fed. Sophie, like, when folks are thinking about, you know, what makes a Fleischer's experience a Fleischer's experience, you know, kind of paint the picture for us. What are we getting when we walk in there that's different from what we're getting at, you know, the key foods up the street or another um, butcher shop here in the city? What is the kind of Fleischer's aesthetic approach? Yeah, so Fleischer's is, is all about the quality, um, which starts from where it's raised and how it's raised, how it's processed, um, all the way down to the butchers cutting it and getting it ready for the case. Um, so the experience of wa- walking into a butcher shop and it, is this is that full picture and talking with the butcher and getting to know them and having a relationship with the local butcher shop in this kind of old school way is is what we've always held to be, you know, the perfect experience. And so being able to to educate people on difference between grass fed pasture raised is definitely a conversation that happens a lot. Um, but people being able to just come in and, and leave with something either that they come in and get every single week or something that's totally different that they've never had before and to have the opportunity to try something new. So getting to go around the whole animal, I think, is what a lot of customers are excited about when they can come to Fleischer's and they can think of anything, any recipe from a pig's foot to to you know any more commonly known cut of beef. It's It's part of the the opportunity to work with a local butcher. Yeah, you get the full picture. Well, Sam, obviously, like thinking about things from an operational standpoint, um, how do you guys do your sourcing? Like, how do you decide where to buy animals from? Are you bringing in primarily whole animals, animals and cuts? And, and how do you kind of make some of those decisions about the sourcing? Yeah, it, the sourcing is absolutely crucial to what we do. And it's not just the sourcing, it's also bringing some transparency to our customers so they know exactly where it's coming from. So right now we buy exclusively from New York and Connecticut. Um, Chickens come from Pennsylvania, but other than that, the larger animals are all coming from New York and Connecticut. And we have our own set of standards that we hold our farmers to. Um, Whether an animal is is grass-fed or pasture-raised, that is something that we make a distinction between. But regardless, the animal needs to spend its life outdoors. Um, it needs to, everything is pasture-raised, whether it's grass-fed or, um, you know, we, we, we do buy beef that gets uh, some grain throughout its life, not a large amount, a very small amount, but it brings it closer to the marbling that people expect at, you know, if, they've, if they're transitioning from a key foods to um, Fleischer's. And um, the standards also include no antibiotics, no hormones. We uh, partner with specific small slaughterhouses, and we ask that the farmers use those slaughterhouses, um, which process the animals one at a time, ensuring that everything is taken care of uh, in the way it should. And um, we, the farmers, we have to be able to visit. That's a very important part, and that's part of what we offer our employees also is we do, at a minimum, an annual farm tour where every single employee in the company, we shut down the company, uh, all the shops are closed, and we take everyone out to those farms, and they get to see where the animals are living and ask all those questions. One of the things that comes up, I feel like, a lot, especially when you're talking about, uh, you know, I'm using air quotes here, good meat, is this idea that, yeah, you know, you can do, you know, a cow or a pig that way, but you're not going to, like, 
feed the world with this type of meat. I know you guys have gone through um, some transition and are, and are a growing company. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what's been kind of working and what are maybe some of the challenges as you've looked around to bring in more product. Absolutely. Scaling, we have found to be really crucial to making our business work on a, uh, on a just financial nuts and bolts level. There are certain economies of scale you get when you grow bigger. And the challenge has been to work with the farmers to make sure that, that we are um, still supporting them as we grow and that we're growing together. Um, and, and those relationships are changing over time. So for instance, um, with beef, we are starting to develop our, our own co-op because what we found is that there are, is no single farmer that, that we know of that we're working with in the Northeast that can support all of our beef for all of our shops. And we now have three shops. We have um, Brooklyn and Park Slope. We have Kingston, New York. And then we have uh, Westport, Connecticut. And we're expecting to open another store in Greenwich, Connecticut in this summer. So with this co-op, we actually are putting more in on our end. We are investing and in actually purchasing the animals up front, and then we're paying a group of farmers a stipend to raise the animals for us to our standards. And in that way, we're assisting the farmers by taking a lot of risk away from them. We're putting in that upfront cost so they don't have to. And uh, we pay any vet fees that might come up over the course of the animal's life. And then we take, handle a lot of the transportation as well. Wow. So it sounds like with that move, the things that you're going to need to know about are going to expand pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. We, it's, it's been a steep learning curve. We've done a lot of research. Uh, and this is what our a lot of what our CEO, Ryan Fibiger, has been spending a lot of his time doing is figuring out what are these standards. We've definitely looked to American Grass-Fed Association. We've looked at AWA for what their standards look like so we can develop ours kind of based on that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but you know the farmers are are the experts. They've the people we're working with are not novices. They've been doing this for a while, and we definitely look to them to bring their knowledge to the table. Do you think there are particular challenges um, to being you know operational and looking to source primarily in the Northeast? I mean, does that set you apart from the issues that a, a butcher shop of your scale or your ambition would be facing in you know Southern California or the Pacific Northwest? There are definitely challenges to raising animals in the Northeast. I think one of the big ones is that, you know, Carrie Balcom last week on your show was talking about seasonality in in animals and in meat. And you can really see that a lot in the Northeast because of the drastic swings in, in weather throughout the year. So we do carry 100% grass-fed beef, and the difference between that uh, the fat content in that in the winter is drastically different from the fat content in that during the summer. So that is something that we kind of have to educate customers on, make sure that they understand that particularly with the grass-fed, there might there might be those differences, and that's normal, and that's something to almost look forward to. Um, and then there's kind of a, a land issue. We don't have the wide-open spaces that they have in the West, so finding farmers who have the capacity to build bigger farms is is challenging with as as we grow and we are looking a lot to new york state both the hudson river valley where we've historically worked and also a little bit further west interesting well sophie on that note when we're thinking about um kind of things from the consumer end like what are the are there like trends and challenges you see um, for what folks are coming in like asking for and wanting and like what are the kind of challenges and education that you're seeing 
at the at the counter level from a marketing perspective? Sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely on seasonality, you think that you know, on grilling season, we see an uptick on great grilling cuts, and then have to figure out what to do with those really lush braising cuts, and vice versa. You know, trying to get people excited about lamb shanks. I mean, that that in itself is is a fun challenge that we take head on and I think encouraging by giving advice, giving tips, you know, it touches back on the relationship with the butcher, but you know, really really giving an opportunity to, to introduce and talk about cuts that maybe aren't don't fit the season, but showing new and exciting ways to use them. Um, I think also, you know, people are are trying to be even more educated out there today and they and they listen to radio programs and they they stay up on, um, you know, food experts that are that are writing a lot out there, and there's so much information. And I think a lot comes in about certified organic specifically, and that's a question we get over the phone and in the shop a lot. Is is about certified organic pork, and you know, our pork is raised on the most beautiful farm upstate, and it is a it's actually a, a certified organic hay farm. Um, and they're leading happy lives, running in the woods, eating wild apples and tubers and just, you know, living living the life a pig should live. Um, but it's not certified organic. So explaining why that might be cost prohibitive for small farmers, explaining why, you know, yes, they could have that certification, but maybe that doesn't speak towards the quality of life in the big picture. So really just touching on that with customers, encouraging them to try it, understanding the point that they're coming from and, and their intention for asking and how good that is and you know how the organic movement has become such a huge part of the food industry now um, and it is proving to be in a lot of ways a viable business model and so you know, encouraging them to keep, keep going with that and like yeah keep pushing for organic but understand that in this transition period, especially in the meat industry, that that might not always be a possibility, um, at least in our shop at this time. It's something that is always in, in conversation. And so, you know, keep asking for it, but, but be receptive to the response and, and understand that there are challenges to that alone. Um, but how we can all work together to get to that next stage. Yeah, it's so funny. I was I reading an article this morning about... Um, you know, just because your chicken is organic doesn't mean it was raised um, under humane conditions. Right. And, you know, I really had to, like, take a minute to, to think about the value of the article. Because on one hand, I think it's obviously, like, I'm always erring on the side of increasing transparency and giving people more information. But I also feel like, God damn, you know, if I can't trust organic, then what can I trust? And it gets overwhelming, like, super quickly. And, sure. and what is the role of the media in kind of um, presenting information in a way that is helpful, not overwhelming and confusing? And I, I think you hit it, you know, talking about, like, supporting the transition process mm -hmm. and, like, the fact that this is a dynamic space, I think, really um, resonates with me because I like I want people to be able to understand the difference but I also don't want to lose value of the organic like there's real value to that label and I feel like a lot of times in in press 
there's like a sensationalism behind that parsing where they're like, organic's not what you think it is. Right. Like, organic is bad because it includes these things. And I'm always like, Jesus, no, take it easy. Everybody calm down. Calm down. Take a few steps back. Take a few steps back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Sam, can you speak to that? The organic sourcing when you are asking farmers or looking for where is the bottleneck there? And is it different for beef or for chicken or for pigs? With me, the challenge is that it's another step in the supply chain that has to be organic. So it's with with vegetables, if you're raising them, you know, that the, there's a, a there's a process for the land. The land can't have had any pesticides or anything on it for, I believe it's three years, but I'm, this is not my area of right. expertise. Yeah. I believe it's three years. Um after which then you can plant, you know, then, then your seeds are, are eligible and then you can't use anything on them in that year, obviously. And um, you can't use any chemicals processing them and all that. So if you're raising animals, not only does your land have to be that way and anything you're growing on that land, but then anything you bring in from outside also has to be certified organic. So there's a lot of different things that need to be certified organic. And then there's the costs, which at this point in time, it is incredibly more expensive to buy organic grains than it is to buy um, buy conventional grains. And, you know, even if it's not a lot, it still makes a big difference on the price per pound that a farmer needs to charge. And that ends up being reflected in the in the price to the consumer. Um I think in an ideal world, we would love for all of our farmers to be certified organic. And as we develop this co-op, that's something that we hope to be be able to provide is kind of extension services where we might eventually be able to help them do the paperwork, uh, fill out all the forms required, get the inspectors out there and, and make that happen. Yeah. I think for me, too, the thing that I always like remind people is that, you know, cows are ruminants. Um, so their like dietary needs are very different from pigs. Pigs are omnivores. You know, they definitely, like, there's no grass-fed pigs out there. Correct. It's not a thing you're seeing. That is something we (laughs) point out many times a week. (laughs) And then, um, you know, similarly for chicken. So it's also, I think, often in the meat conversation, what happens really quickly is you have to confront these, like, biological realities, which people get on a very, like, intimate level where, like, oh, I understand, like, what happens in, like, my body when I'm, like, eating different things or when, you know, women have children that then you know milk comes and it's like the same for animals and yet because i think (laughs) we're so removed from thinking of like meat as a living breathing creature that all that kind of really basic biology 101 stuff that we know really goes out the window and then when someone says it back to you you're almost like oh yeah that totally makes sense oh Mm -hmm. absolutely i mean i i have that conversation a lot about veal because we we actually don't carry veal as a company and people are, are devastated that they can't get also buco through us but when I tell them that, well, you know, the, the babies have to, the mother has to get pregnant and have a baby. And then we, you know, when we have bought them in the past, it's been from dairy operations because they have to get the animals pregnant for them to make milk for cheese. And just that, that idea that (laughs) you can't have cheese without first having having a baby baby. is mind blowing. Um, and then the baby gets killed for, for meat, um, which is not, necessarily a problem but understanding that full life cycle and being okay with it i think is part of being a conscious consumer you you understand what the process is and you decide you make the decision for yourself whether you are okay with that and you want to 
eat that end product. Yeah, based on all those criteria. Well, we're going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the Slow Meat Conference coming up this June. So hang tight. We'll be right back. listening to Knife Show. This is the Farm Report on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. And we are back continuing our conversation on meat and the slow meat movement. We are in studio with two of the fine women of Fleischer's. Um, and I wanted to talk with you, Sam, about the upcoming Slow Food. Um, their Slow Meat Conference is happening again this year in Denver, uh, June 4th through the 6th. And you went last year um, as one of their inaugural delegates. So um, give us a sense of how, how was it? What happened? What did you think? What were your kind of takeaways? The first Slow Meat Conference was was great. Um, it was a pretty unique opportunity to connect with people across the country. There were 100 delegates from all different states. Uh, they did a really nice job of spreading that out. And I think so often we get stuck in our own little local communities, especially because of the local movement, that we forget that there are other people doing the same thing in different parts of the country. And then also up and down the supply chain. So from the producers to the processors to the butchers and the people working on the consumer end, there were people spanning all different areas. Awesome. So um, any like kind of aha moments for you? The conference was really focused around brainstorming areas for us to work on collectively. And, and I think... It, you know, there it was less about um, you know a, a, any one person standing up and say I know the correct way to, of doing this than all of us connecting and identifying what the problems are so that this year we can talk about what we're going to do to actually um, you know solve those problems and what we can do in our local communities to make sure that we're all moving forward together rather than separately working on little bits that maybe someone else is also doing in, in another area, but not, not in any kind of real organized way. So um, I, I think that the aha moment was realizing, oh, we're all working on the same problem. Why don't we 
why don't we just do this together? Yeah, I think that to me that always is like my kind of favorite thing about getting together with like a group of other like executive directors or radio people where I'm like, oh, I thought this was just my thing, but you're <laughs> yeah. you're struggling with that too. It makes me feel so much better. Exactly. How do you deal with it? What should we do? So um, what are you excited um, you know, about coming into the conference for this year? I mean, are there things that you've been reflecting on or people you're looking forward to see or like what's getting you like um, motivated for the June time? Well, our company is a very different company this year. As we mentioned earlier, we've grown a lot. And with that, we've taken on a lot of new challenges. Um, our, our space in Red Hook, where we do a lot of the breaking down of whole animals, we, we only get in whole animals. And that space is, uh, we're converting to a USDA processing facility, which is really exciting for us. Uh, it allows us to do um, more wholesale business. It allows us to offer um, cut and wraps for local farmers, which we're excited about. And uh, in general, it just gives us a greater ability to provide, uh, whether it's raw meat or prepared foods or uh, other packaged products. And, and, but that puts us into a whole new space and a whole new set of problems. So I'm excited both to bring what we've learned to the table and share that and also to understand from people who have already done this what we have to look forward to. Sure. Anyone, um, you know, I, I know that there was a big effort made last year to include people along the spectrum of the supply chain. So small producers, large producers, grass fed, grain fed, different, you know, um, types of livestock. Um, are there are there gaps, you, you know, in w- what you saw represented at the summit that you're hoping will be addressed this year? I think pretty consistently people mention the challenges of processing and infrastructure and it was pretty much across the board that people said that that those were issues so i'm really hoping we can dig deeper into those and we are seeing a lot of benefits of kind of collaboration in 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 our co-op and i know that other people are seeing that as well and um but collaboration a bunch of farmers working together still doesn't solve the problem of how are we going to truck the animals to the slaughterhouse or what happens if the net, if the slaughterhouse is four hours away or something like that. So um, I, I think those problems are the ones that, that we need to focus on. Yeah, that were like a little sticky. Well, um, Sophie, kind of thinking about this idea of building a robust community, um, you know, obviously you have your, your team uh, at the shop there and folks who can uh, answer questions. But in your position, I mean, who are the folks that you're looking to to kind of add to your information and giving you like the tools you need to share with your customers? You mean people already in the industry? Or? Yeah, or like, uh, I mean, out of the resources that you look to, is there like, yeah, a meat digest where you're like all oh, the hot meat news is here <laughs> or um you know kind of other things that you use to kind of stay up on on kind of what people are talking to and be able to respond to you know the stuff that people have coming in your direction yeah no i think you know i always try and stay up on blogs like civil eats that really are touching on some of the biggest issues that the food industry is facing right now and i find that to be a great way to then share that information to our customers and our network because, you know, we're, we're experts in meat and cutting meat and, of course, sourcing. But there are so many other issues that are maybe, you know, directly involved in what we do every day or maybe a little bit more tangential that I think still still is good to incorporate in what we share. 
Um, so, you know, and also we all kind of like share books around the company too and staying up on, you know, we, we all recently read like Nicolette Nyman's book and Defending Beef and just kind of hearing what how people are talking about it, whether, you know, arguments are made more in a scientific, you know, study-based argument or something that's more experiential and how people are, are you know, what their experience farming is or what their experience at the slaughterhouse. So really being able to use other resources that are out there um, and share that and definitely then as we bring people into the shop and getting them caught up to even where we are, but also you know, learning about their experience. Um, it, I think definitely is a great forum. I'd love to see more places where people can, can meet and talk about that, whether that be online or in person. But, um, you know, I think really looking at health as a, as a central issue to all of this, because I think that's where a lot of motivation for doing the right thing comes from. Um, yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sam, I'm wondering, you know, we're just about out of time, but I always love to ask the, the magic wand question. <laughs> Is there a problem on your plate right now where you're like, if I had my magic wand, then I could kind of just figure this out. Is there something that jumps to the front of your mind, either, you know, big or small? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, what what we're trying to do on just a day-to-day basis or big-picture basis is connect the most number of people with the uh, with an alternative to the industrial supply chain. And I think if... I wish I could make it uh, as easy, as convenient, uh, and as accessible, you know, in, in every way. And, like, I, I wish there were fleshers on every in every neighborhood. And I wish that the price point was you know, exactly the same or lower than conventional beef and all that. I think it's really about accessibility because without, um, without the high quality being available to everyone, I think it, it, it you know, we're, we're not quite there yet. It's still working. still working. Mm-hmm. So, so the accessibility thing, I, I would just make it, you know, it's free. It's free for everyone. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that's like coming from a very good place of like wanting everyone to be able to, um, have access to meat that they can feel good about. It's good for their their families and good for the environment, Um, which is a lot more of what you're going to hear at the Slow Food uh, USA Slow Meat Conference. Again, that's coming up um, this June, 4th through 6th in Denver. You can learn more by visiting www.slowfoodusa.org. Um, you can find out more about Fleischer's, obviously, by visiting their stores or follow them on Twitter. It's at Fleischer's. Um, but any kind of learning opportunities, anything coming up that folks should have on their radar? Yeah, absolutely. We um, we have several Butchery 101 classes coming up, which are some short-form ways for people of all, all skill levels to join in. We're doing a slaughter class on May 17th, where we actually go to a small farm in the Hudson Valley um, and are, are present for a pig slaughter. Um, very educational. And, uh, you know, especially for people who are looking to butchery as a profession, Fleischer's has probably the best program in the country, if not the world, on learning how to butcher. And you come on board for three months, you join us in Red Hook, you are cutting, cutting, cutting all day, every day with this sustainable local food system focus. Um, and it's it's amazing, the, the applicants and the inquiries that we get from 
Istanbul to Kenya to Colombia to to Brooklyn. I mean, I, there's a lot of interest, and it's really exciting for us to share our mission and our skills. So definitely encourage people to apply um, and ask more questions to the website. Keep those keep those coming. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Sophie, Sam, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great chatting with you today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Well, that is a wrap, folks. You've made it to the end of another episode of The Farm Report. Stay with us. Uh, we'll be back next week with more talk on the food and farming industry. You can find our show, like all 39 of our weekly programs on the Heritage Radio Network, uh, through iTunes or Stitcher. If you like us, please subscribe. And, and if you're feeling very generous, leave a comment. That definitely helps people find us and learn more about the show. Visit our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are in the middle of a Kickstarter campaign. I hope you'll kick in a couple of bucks to help us bring you a better website. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.